Hello, Movies We Miss listeners. This is your co-host, Jane, and I'm here to let you know that we are taking a short break from releasing episodes. Brandon and I are taking a much-needed vacay, and we will be back in two weeks. We love you. See you guys soon. Bye! Can't believe that you haven't seen it. Love it so much you really gotta stream it. Let me tell you every line right now. I can quote the whole thing since I was 12. Maybe your mom told you no. She said she wouldn't give you any money to go. And that's why movies we missed. Hey. Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of Movies We Missed. I'm your host, Brandon Greenhouse, along with my co-host, Jane Tabitha Hammer. Jane, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm good. I Well, you know, you, things, are, things are spicy in the studio here. You okay. Know. Uh, before we get into the episode, I did just want to say that if you want to keep tabs on us, you can find us over on Instagram and Facebook at Movies We Missed. And you can find us tweet, tweet, tweeting away over on our award-winning Twitter account at MWM Chat. How are you doing today, Janie? I'm good. <laughs> good. Good. It's good to see you. Um... Yeah, we actually we had a we had a we had a brief little chat before the episode started about social mm-hmm. medias and mm-hmm. TikTok. Um, I did have a question because I I messaged you earlier. The story, did I you? guess, is no. I mean, you saw it earlier, but like the oh, story okay. is break. Like it's, it was a it's a new story that's like breaking right now about like Meta, the company that owns Facebook, like releasing oh, Facebook allegedly and Instagram and WhatsApp, yeah. Yeah. allegedly releasing like you know the the text conversations of a 17 year old ne- Nebraska, um, you know, and zoom as well. Dave points out. Yeah. Um, but mm. releasing this Nebraska, you know, teens t- and her mother's like text messages regarding her attempting to obtain an abortion that is now uh, un- uh, uh, foolishly illegal in, um, in Nebraska, Nebraska and like them being prosecuted her and her mother. It's like, that's a big, like possibility right now that's happening and yeah it really made me sick to the stomach to because even i'm so sick i'm so sick of people being like well you know there's protected states that you can always go and get an abortion in and it's not that big of a deal we're just giving states back their right to decide and it's like oh wow what a fucking country thank god we've got this you know savior system but all of these fucking laws that they're putting on put like banning abortion on a state level and then not only banning it making it a fucking um i I think a felony in in a lot of states and you can be prosecuted and charged and possibly go to jail it is i mean as i'm sure everybody fucking knows an attack on all of us on every citizen of this country absolutely and it is it, it it creates, unlike what the GOP like to call a constant witch hunt, you know, they're always, Donald Trump was always claiming a fucking witch hunt. And it's like, this is yeah, an until they until hunt. they Until they knocked on that door at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was like, then mom was the word. <laughs> boom, let me see your safe, bitch. Um, yeah, that was huge news yesterday. 
Oh, that was huge news yesterday. Donald Trump's no, I made a word. I did huge. I oh, huge. huge. Oh, huge. Yeah, that's that's, that's the huge news. Um, yeah, his uh, Mar-a-Lago estate or whatever home, his beautiful home, as he says in his statement, got raided by the FBI. And it's so funny now, too, because you see all these fucking um, right. Oh, yeah. Everybody's backtracking like, now. Defund the FBI. Oh, and it's like, bitch, we've been saying that for ages. <laughs> yeah, Marjorie's been on a, on a real tear over, oh, over social media. Someone needs to take her phone away. Again. I mean, the, the hypocrisy is is unbelievable. But but anyways, my real concern and my real fear is for these young people who are, um, you know, being these huge companies that are selling information it's about so these, these young people who are seeking out a medical old. procedure that is their fucking choice to make and it also is be. like it also like it doesn't matter but it also makes me curious how all of this even started like what like mm-hmm. a friend or a family member like ratting her out it's also like you motherfuckers don't have anything better to do than go through it the does text messages matter of because a fucking 17 year old you don't know who you can trust well that no that's so no you're 1000 percent right and also it makes me wonder like because of course this is th- this this whole witch hunt that's happening and like this as a like as a new political move is going to absolutely unfairly the the weight of this is all going to fall on the pregnant party or, mm-hmm. or the person carrying who has to yep. go through making this heroin decision and like the other party whoever that person may be is like essentially at this point like i mean allowed a certain amount of anonymity and like yeah. allowed like a grace that like she doesn't get and it's just like it's so fucked up and I wonder if the person who I know. got her pregnant, I wonder if that person's name was revealed within those text, message, text messages and what sort of consequences they're facing, which, spoiler alert, is probably fucking nothing. Exactly. But... Yeah, no, for sure. It's just like, huh, it was just really upsetting and I yeah, just, it's, it's bullshit. And I, I thought that it was worth mentioning, not that there's not absolutely horrific atrocities that are happening every fucking day. Um, but yeah, that really like made my stomach turn. Um, yeah, it's horrible. And, and, and the, the impact is just beginning. And, um, you know, it's an interesting lead in to our movie choice this week, which I think, um, more more horrible choices and horrible, more horrible choices, more people you can't trust more story wise and, and, caught on cellular lord as well exactly um this week we i had brandon watch a movie called party monster which is 20 20 years yeah years old 2003 and almost so 19 yeah yeah, i've been acting like it's two like it's 2023 probably because i just went out of this year but yeah it's not there yet but i have been saying that multiple times i've been like 20 years about something that was from 2003 or 30 years about something from 93 it's like we're not there yet girl we're actually literally in the middle also there's Mm -hmm. so much more bullshit that's gonna happen this year i'm sure absolutely absolutely where we are strapped in the middle of whatever this fucking ride is that i've been one off of for (laughs) for so long so long oh god oh my god do you have a synopsis that you want to share with me and our lovely listeners out there so actually did something a little bit different i did write a synopsis okay but 
it's not really a synopsis of the movie. Okay. And I hope that you will bear with me here. It's something that I felt I had to write in a specific way because Ooh. of the narrative of this story has been sort of usurped historically. And I wanted to tell the story of what Party Monster is trying to do, or at least is pretending aiming to, to, to do, do pretending <laughs> to try to do is tell the story about a really tragic death within like this nightlife scene and is this some of your beat poetry just this is yeah so this is spoken word um okay. no this is category this is, is doug's <laughs> sister <laughs> So this is longer than I normally do. It's obviously That's way okay. more serious than I normally do because we are talking about real human people here. Absolutely. And this is the first time we've done this. Mm -hmm. And I want to be careful and I want to make sure that I get the details there and center the real person who this story should be centered about. Okay. Centered in of about i don't know what my prepositions are apparently but anyways so yes it's a synopsis but not necessarily of the movie okay that's fine <clears throat> okay so <clears throat> strap in it's a little bit of a long one in march of 1996 johnny melendez hasn't heard from his brother angel in a long time Angel lived in Manhattan with his roommate, a man named Michael Alec, but still checked in with his brother on a regular basis. Johnny filed a missing persons report, but with the NYPD being, you know, the NYPD, there was little concern for Angel's whereabouts. Angel was not the ideal candidate for police to sink their resources into. He was a Colombian immigrant, rumored to sell drugs, and to top it all off, he was part of the iconic New York City club kid scene. Abandoned by the police, Johnny decided to take matters into his own hands. He posted flyers around the city with pictures of his brother, asking for those who had any idea of his whereabouts to contact him immediately. That's when Johnny started to hear the rumors. The rumor mail was always fierce among the club kids. They were an electric group of people that consisted of artists and creatives of all kinds that dressed in a wild aesthetic that celebrated the grotesque nature of wealth, gore, and indulgence throughout the late 80s and early 90s. They took this look to many of the clubs of downtown Manhattan, partied, did a lot of drugs, and had any kind of sex they wanted. They were the disenfranchised youth of the moment, and nothing and no one was going to stop them from being themselves. While there were many leaders, it didn't belong to just one person, and it certainly wasn't created by Michael Alec, which many depictions of history would have you believe. If anything, Michael Alec stole the idea and figured out how to popularize it through manipulation and underhanded tactics to center himself as the king of the club kids. Michael would do anything, and he coerced those around him to get on the ride or get the fuck out. He pissed on people all the time, made his so-called friends drink vomit, fed them drugs, and persuaded them to take off their clothes on stage and be filmed. He used people, and he stole from people, and then admitted it straight to their faces, and dared them to stand up to him, knowing full well that if you are on the outs with Michael Alec, you are blackballed from the scene altogether. That's what he did to people time and time again. He either brought them up or brought them down, and that's just what he did to Angel. Michael was addicted to drugs, and he knew that Angel sold them. He pretended to befriend him while outwardly calling him a wannabe and forced Angel to give him free drugs constantly. 
When Angel lost his job, Michael encouraged him to move in with him, not out of concern for his friend, but so he'd have access to all the drugs that Angel sold. One night, after Michael and another club kid, Freeze, did all of Angel's drugs while he was out, the three of them got into an argument. Angel wanted payment for the drugs. Instead of admitting any wrongdoing, things turned physical, and Freeze attacked Angel with a hammer. They beat him unconscious, and when they realized he wasn't dead, they tried to smother him with a pillow. When that didn't work, they poured Drano into his mouth and duct taped it shut. Angel was dead. Instead of instantly realizing what a mistake they made and turning themselves in, they let Angel's body sit in the tub for a week. The only motivating factor in getting him out of there was the smell. Michael proceeded to chop up Angel's body to fit him in a cardboard box and dump him unceremoniously into the river. And those rumors were started by Michael himself. Privately, he was confessing what actually happened to friends. Publicly, he was confessing to murder because he thought it was funny. News of those rumors made their way back to Johnny Melendez, and he went to go speak to Michael himself. Michael couldn't look Johnny in the face. He was cagey, and his eyes were darting all around the room. He couldn't prove it, but he knew the rumors about Michael's involvement in Angel's death were true. The rumors eventually made their way to the press, and several publications made it front-page news. Now the police were interested. Maybe it's because the public is involved and they'll hold them accountable. Who knows? But it's clear they can no longer ignore the case. Michael feels the heat and flees the city. He goes on a road trip, sees his mom, sees a friend named Screaming Rachel, who writes a hilarious song called Murder in Clubland, and does all the drugs he can find. Once he's out of drugs and money, he makes his way back to New York. He finds another young kid who sells drugs who he can prey on and holds up with him in a hotel in New Jersey. The box with Angel's body eventually watches up to shore, and there's enough evidence for the police to finally arrest Michael and Freeze for the murder of Angel Melendez. They both take a deal and plead guilty to manslaughter and are sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. Party Monster is an entertaining movie. It's worth a watch, but it's not the whole story. It's the story of Michael, as told by himself and his friends that are sucked into his orbit. I can't help but wonder what the story would look like if the research and the interviews had focused more on the testimonials of Angel's friends and family. One of the many tragedies of this whole situation, and one of the largest acts of manipulation Michael Alec has yet again pulled off, is that the story of Angel's life that was tragically cut short is now all about Michael Alec. Done. Oh, that was great. I think, no, I <laughs> think that was great. I think that was a great way of, like, handling it, too, because, I mean... This is like a movie, but also like as we, we watched the movie Party Monster, the 2003 movie, but also there's a, um, a 1998 documentary. Um, and if I remember correctly, they were, it's called Party Monster Shockumentary. The Shockumentary. The yeah. Shockumentary. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I remember correctly, they were both um, written and they were both directed at least by Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbato, who are producers of, they work for, uh, oh, they're owners of World of Wonder, I believe, and mm-hmm. which produces all of the Drag Race shows, uh, yeah. RuPaul's Drag Race, which is mm-hmm. just like an interesting um, connection. But that 19, what were you saying? 
Well, when the movie started and I was watching again, I was like, why do I know the name Fenton Bailey? And it was yeah. all the all the RuPaul stuff. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's Who, like in this RuPaul, by the way, former club kid. Absolutely. You know? From and maybe mm-hmm. friends with him. I don't know. Like, I mean, yeah, maybe friends with him from back then. I don't know. They're all around the same right. age, early 60s. But uh, yeah, it's it's really like interesting watching the movie first and then watching the documentary, which is available on mm-hmm. Netflix, by the way, if anybody's interested, The um, not the movie, the documentary. Um, yeah, it's, it's on YouTube, too. It's, it's I, I'm so sorry. I absolutely thought I was saying YouTube when I was saying Netflix. Um, it oh. is not on Netflix. <laughs> it is on YouTube for free. Um, so yeah, right now. Uh, once our episode airs, of course, you know how it works. We have a really yeah. wide reach, and usually, once we talk about something, even if it is mm-hmm. like available on streaming services or anything like that, the powers that be realize they can monetize on it because of our global impact. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. get on it quick. That's all I can say. We're exactly exactly. Said there's gonna be is gonna be a paywall soon. <laughs> Absolutely, and yeah. once again, there's gonna be a bidding war. I don't know for what, mm-hmm. um, but. <laughs> just seemed like a really like a way to add a little bit of drama uh so (laughs) yeah so this movie um a lot is a lot of it is taken directly from the documentary like it's like shot for shot it's kind of like crazy which was surprising having watched the movie first and then watching the documentary (laughs) and realizing that um we're not dealing with visionaries um in terms of like (laughs) cinematic scope because they are just like a lot and and maybe in their minds they were thinking we're going to keep it as true and as authentic to the material as we can, which is fair, but like it was just surprising to see like whole which I ass think scenes. Was the choice that they were making? They were like, "I want to keep this. Like, I want this to be as real as it was." But the problem is that the point of view of the documentary is one very specific biased point of view, which is by Michael is in there himself and all of his, you know, supporters and friends and family who he still speaks to, you know, or he did, he's dead. Now, yeah. But. He passed away December 25th of uh, 2020. I think from, I think it was confirmed to be a heroin overdose. Um, yeah, it was a heroin so, overdose. So yeah, that, um, it's interesting that, uh, Robert Riggs, AKA freeze, the other uh, person charged in this is now like a PhD like person and like, I think he works for like NYU or something and like has been working with like, does a lot of research on the prison system or whatever. Um, So I thought that was kind of a interesting pivot. Um, Everybody's gonna, gonna make a move, I guess. Can't be a club kid forever. So. Yeah. I mean, well, I think that is also like the theme of this movie too. Like can't be a club kid forever, you know, I I mean, along with all of the other themes, like, Hey, murder is very fucking uncool. (laughs) <laughs> no, absolutely. And and Party Monster, we're going to probably be, just so everybody knows, sort of toggling back and forth between the documentary and the movie. The movie mm-hmm. Party Monster was released on uh, September 5th, 2003. So we are knock, knock, knocking on that anniversary, that 19th year anniversary. Um, mm-hmm. It was made for a budget of $5 million and it made around 740k at the box office upon release. Um, okay, so the over- first of all, the thing about this movie for me is that I did not particularly enjoy it. Part of the reason why mm. I didn't enjoy it is because I I I think it hasn't been preserved well. Um like right. it is like it, it's it's the format that I found it in um was like really like not good. It was like yeah. formatted for TV and it was really which means that it was sort of vertical and it was like smashed in uh-huh. a little bit in this way so that first mm-hmm. of all that's not a ding against the movie that's just that's a formatting issue so that's not really it 
but right. it just but it, it does it, it does affect the experience the experience of viewing but then the mm-hmm. other thing is i kind of have and i've been going back and forth with this i kind of had problems with the two central performances i i you, felt yeah, like me too. yeah i felt like macaulay calkin and seth green who are both people that i love by the way and like very like absolutely close to my heart huge part of my childhood and actors that i get mm-hmm. excited when i see a like a movie with the two of them in in, in the movie like 100 I, I like them mm-hmm. both and i feel like this sort of like connection in a way to them because they were such a huge part of my childhood but like I felt like what my problem was, I've been trying to figure it out. And I think what it is, is it feels like Culkin and Green are both playing these queer individuals. And it feels like there's this separation between who they are as as people and who these characters are. And it feels like instead of them sort of like finding a way to imbue the characters with like authenticity, they're they're like playing these versions of what they think gay people are like that aren't even to me, at least, especially from seeing the shockumentary and just footage I've seen of James. James St. James is still like very much like a personality who exists in like the culture. And like, I've seen other videos of James St. James doing like makeup videos and talking about books and interviews and things like that. So if you have any part of queer culture or even just like, like you have seen James St. James do something. (laughs) No, absolutely. And if you look up James St. James, He's ma- yeah, I mean, no, he's making not, it, yeah. there's nothing to be, sh- no shade to be had. He's like, exactly. a, you know, he's a name. I mean, you know, especially right. if you are a queer individual. Um, but like, I felt like they were doing like this performance of queerness that like, but they weren't actually allowing themselves to like access the reality of any of it. So it was just like, what is this like? And when I first started, when the movie first started, I saw that there was the scene at the the very first scene of the film is a scene where Seth Green as the James St. James character is being interviewed. And then later on, we see that scene in the movie and I, it may, and it's him being recorded talking about Michael and talking about this sort of part of their lives. And mm-hmm. I thought when I first saw that scene, I thought, Oh, cause the next couple of scenes where we're first seeing Michael and, um, and James interacting, I thought to myself, oh, is this a movie within a movie? Like, is this them in a movie acting? Like, is it acting these characters? And I was like, no, this is like them in this movie just being these characters. And it was so... And you know what it feels like? This is This is like, now that I'm thinking about this, I'm Mm -hmm. kind of able to put my finger on it. It's Mm -hmm. like, it almost feels like, you know, you and I watch a lot of um, true crime. Pornography. And... Right. On top of... Oh, no, what you said. Right. (laughs) Um, But there's, like, you know, a lot of, like, investigation, discovery, and stuff like that. And there are these reenactments of things that are horrible and sometimes very laughable. Mm -hmm. And watching this, because it is a reenactment of, like, the documentary and of the you know the story that happened or whatever it's almost like the performances make you feel like you're kind of what and like the way the um the formatting is uh kind of make you feel like you're watching one of those um poor reenactments it gave, from like a true yes, show it gave hardcore like tv movie vibes like yes it yes. gave very much like a tv movie that you'd be like oh this is a bad tv movie like yeah. that was what it gave, and like that's hard for me to say because I do love them, and I and I've also seen them be wonderful in other things. So it's it's no shit. Of it's course, just, this movie we're also dealing with two people who I believe identify as like straight, like 
inhabiting this world of queerness. And it's like, it's one more sort of, in a way, a kind of example of like, you know, you can't help but wonder if a person who was queer had been cast in these parts, if they would have inherently had a sensibility that allowed them to maybe access these characters without sort of like allowing the characters to sort of like, like they're wearing these, they're like, these characters are sitting on top of them in a way. And I feel like I can feel the weight of that in some of these scenes where it's like, they don't have depth. And even just like vocally. There's a thing vocally that they do where it's like, they're both putting on this like weird sort of like, this weird like, transatlantic yes. accent <laughs> it's i i it's like it's, it's very hard to describe but you know none of them speak you, neither of them speak like that no. in real life and michael alec and james say james don't speak like that so it's no. really confusing where that comes from i i don't know how, how they arrived there and i may be giving it a lot because what i because i've seen some of the other work these agents have directed but i I also like was giving them the benefit of the doubt a little bit. And Dave actually pointed out, oh, well, it's like, it's camp. Like they're trying to make camp. They're trying and I to was make like, camp. And that's Instead fine. Instead of being camp. Instead of being camp. And I think that's another reason. If that is what they're trying to do. And if they decided we're going to make this movie. Because like the other thing that should be noted is that they're the only two characters in the movie who are, who I'm getting this vibe from, you know? Totally. So Everyone like, else feels pretty authentic. You know, they're the two main characters. Though, they're so the it's two. Like, it's possible that in a world they were like, we want everybody else to be grounded in reality and we want you two to represent this sort of like hyper, hyper real, like over the top, you know, you know, human being. We want you to sort of inhabit sure. what we imagine them to have thought that they were like radiating to the world, which is like tough and you don't have, the, you don't have the range to do that. Like, right. so that's a tough, that's, that's a, a tough ve- That's a very, very, very tough and, and and I honestly to bring in another element of like it may not be that deep mm-hmm. I think we've got uh, <laughs> I think we might be giving them too much credit in that sense where it's like we have a directorial issue because yes. the directors of this film also are the the, the the directors and the writers Fenton Bailey and I forget the other name um, Robert Roberto something, Randy. Randy Barberto. Randy Barberto. Randy Barberto. The disrespect. I'm sorry, Randy. Well, I'm about to say something even more disrespectful. So <laughs> you might want to pause me. <laughs> oh my god. But I think the skill level with those two directors in directing actors was not there because if you look at their work prior to and after it is all documentaries or reality tv and you are pretty much like have no experience as far as i understand based on what's on your imdb pages on directing actors maybe you have theater experience but i mm-hmm. i don't know that and also that's very different but you know there doesn't seem to be um that heart there which is why i think maybe the performances were lacking in that sense and i have a feeling and this is just a this is just a feeling and dave mentioned it and it's been in my head a little bit um but he said i bet they were just no i bet the note they kept getting was bigger bigger of course and i bet i bet that that's something that was happening because we know these two 
to be performers yeah. that can give like they're I mean they're not known for transformative type Daniel Day Lewis level work, but like no, but we but know that they're are... like actors of a formidable talent and they do a certain type of thing really well, which is why they're like largely adored and loved by fans. Mm-hmm. So it's like I feel like it was two men who were very young and they were tasked with this is this is a huge undertaking. And mm-hmm. I even said to Dave at one point, I was like, the thing too, though, is like, even if this was camp, which is camp that's way too aware of what it's trying to be, this still mm-hmm. isn't really a story where like, we need that. Like, this is the story of like, a, a like a person who was killed. Like, like, this isn't a world where I need like, I don't need like, fanta- I don't need fantasy in that regard. I don't need camp. And like, I don't feel like these are characters that like, that we need to see in that light. Like... I think like the idea, yeah, this isn't, this isn't that project. And I also think like, you know, I'm just from watching this movie, which again, I do like, I enjoy watching this movie and I think I have a history with it because it exposed, it exposed me to what the club kids are. And I, and, and it's very queer. And for me, um, you know, as a young kid seeing this for the first time, I was totally fascinated and went on like, you know, uh, internet, um, to borrow a term from the movie, an internet K-hole researching all of the stuff about club kids and, and, you know, what they represented and how queer they were. And they did some, they were, you know, they did some very um, essential things like bringing, you know, queer life and into people's, you know, televisions who are watching Geraldo in the Midwest. That's important. And it's all overshadowed by this one narcissist, selfish, um dude who uh took someone's life or sorry to him and freeze but the story is about michael alec right it's not about angel and it's not about the death even though they make it sound like it's the death it is about the fascination with a person that they idolized within this scene and how he got to where he got and i think that's the fundamental problem because we bury the story and the tragedy in um you know in the search of trying to figure out who this person is and what this person is is someone who um clearly has a lot of um you know huge issues and i don't think deserves any more limelight than they are absolutely begging for what also also it feels like in the documentary and in the movie like like, it just seems like Michael Alig is given all of this space to be a multitude of things. And, like, mm-hmm. Angel, and like Angel is Angel Melendez is sort of reduced to, like, this one aspect of his personality, having, like, sold drugs, apparently, like, casually, which, like, a lot of people did. And, like, it's, like, yeah. he was more than that. And in the very beginning of the documentary, one of the first things that we hear Michael say is that after having murdered him is that he was just like a poser, like pretending to fit in. But it's like, if that, but it's also like, you're all just posers. That's, that's what this lifestyle hinges on is like people who didn't belong finding out about this culture and like 
becoming a part of it and like finding family in it. And so it's like, it feels weird that like we're ultimately using the same cool kid rules that so many of these people like rallied against and grew up like, and it's a system that so many of these people grew up having to like battle to try and like counter because there wasn't space for them within it. So it's like, you're using those same rules to ostracize and to create the same sort of social hierarchy that you were at the, that you were existed on the lower rung of during your during your mm-hmm. your formative years. So it's really interesting that it's like we're still using the same rule set. We're just sort of recalibrating. We're deciding who's where. And also he made You're a just comment. The elements are different. And I think Yeah. I I, I say finish what I want to say, but I want to comment on oh, that. Oh no, I, I I was just gonna say also the comment was made like, oh, he probably saw some like, you know, on Geraldo and then like decided to move to New York. And it's like everybody found like so many of the people interviewed in the documentary say I found out about this culture through watching it on television and then they were welcomed warmly into it. So it's like, w- like, why is that a bad thing? Like you went on the show, there was a person you claimed as I've watched the interview, as some of these um, interviews, you claim that this is a culture for those outcasts. So it's like, why are we using that against him? And why is that like in some way? And also he was one of the people on the Geraldo episode. So it's like, mm-hmm. did he see it or was he on it already? So it's like, it's just like that theory of like, and and also that being a sort of like excuse because because what I'm hearing sub for, in the subtext of this is like he was a disposable person because I didn't deem him authentic because he mm-hmm. we didn't find him to be authentic and we didn't find him to be you know um, to have the kind of like you know social cachet that we did so like his life was expendable as a result of that once he no longer served a purpose to us once he could no longer like provide us with like drugs you know, then he had no use for us. And it's like, that's mm-hmm. kind of what it sounds like to me, which is like heartbreaking. It's it's what it is. I mean, and I think, you know, the ultimate thing is that like, Michael Ehrlich was a bad fucking person. And he's like, he was in a position to be idolized and it's really hard for people to wrap their head around the fact that there was a person who had so much power within your subculture and, or your counterculture, whatever the right term for it is. And he turned out to be the worst possible version of what you expected. And that's really hard for people to wrap their heads around. So like, and people spent time with him and had a good time with him and felt loved by him or felt the glow of his attention on them. And so this like, you know, everyone in this documentary and and within his life, and again, the documentary, the movie Party Monsters really pulled from the documentary. They're very much in conversation with each other. Yeah, which is why we keep referencing it, because those are where the real people are seen saying the things about a person who who needlessly took somebody's life that you can't believe how flippant and how forgiving they are in this moment. And in, in every moment when they speak about him, you just think like, God, what if that was your brother? What if that was your sister? Would you be still saying the same things? Like, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling how little value they place on Angel's life within both of these pieces of film. And, um, you know, and there's the whole other aspect. Angel is the one of the few non-white people in this. So what the fuck does that say, you know? And it's like, and the people that aren't white seem to be like, seem to have to provide some sort of use 
you know, yes. or they are expendable in a way because the other characters, Kaoki, who um, I believe is Salvadorian, um, mm-hmm. is de- still a world famous DJ, but was a romantic interest of Michael Aleg, um at for some sort of stint, and is played by the icon, the legend, Wilmer Valderrama in the movie. <laughs> um, but like another character who like has a use until he doesn't. It's like so. It's like another brown person who like is expendable right. to a certain degree once he no longer is is providing. So it's like mm-hmm. these characters are asked to do a kind of uh, like they have to offer a sort of labor to prove themselves mm-hmm. and they're the only ones that have to. And then all the black characters in the movie uh, ended up on the cutting room floor apparently. Um, so apparently there were no <laughs> black people in the club kids. In, no, no, in, no. They in, weren't in, around apparently and we know yeah. that's not true. So it's like Yeah, of course. What's the what's the, what's the tea? Cuz they also, you know, with the exception of Rue making an appearance, RuPaul makes an appearance on Geraldo. Um, but other than that, uh, it's like, yeah, they, they it's, weren't They really... push the white kids forward. And it also shows you who Michael um, Alex surrounds himself with. Oh, for Because sure. these are characters based on real people and they are almost unique. Even the documentary, there weren't any white people. There weren't any... any, yeah. any no, there was no black people in the documentary mm-hmm. we had um a and a lot of, people... of racial slurs being thrown around too from yeah. michael alec specifically oh yeah freely yeah. casually it's just yeah it's like there's so much of that also what people are describing is a lot of times they describe it with a chuckle but it's like that's just abuse like yeah. your funny anecdote assault. yeah is just assault like there was like the story of like the, there's a story of a woman who was like at a bar and like Michael Alig was on the balcony of the bar and just pissed on she her. Was a, she was a new bartender at Limelight, the the club that they, um, that Michael Alec promoted for and they spent a lot of time at. And he was, he felt like he was fucking untouchable, the king of Limelight. And he was on the balcony. He took out his dick and pissed on her from above her. And she was horrified and started crying and went to the back and told Peter Gation, who was the owner of Limelight and a mentor to Michael, uh, Michael Alec, um, this is what happened. And she got fired. And even as the story was being told, the person telling it was like laughing about it. Like, those were the times. And it's like, nope. It's inexcusable. Oh, it was James St. James. Yeah, that, that that's not, yeah. these And there were so many of those stories about, like, Michael, like, having people, like, consume his bodily fluids. And, like, it was just, it's really, like, vile. And, like, here's one thing I will say, and I'm not excusing anything because it's all atrocious. I do, and when I was reading an interview in The Guardian with, with him, he made mm-hmm. a comment which I was like, this doesn't excuse it. But I get what you're trying, I get what you're trying to add to the conversation, which was, he was like when you're on heroin and when you're on ketamine to those, the one of the questions that the, the, the person who was interviewing him, who, who really was sort of like asking hard questions, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, not really just asking. So you, did you do this? Did you do that? It's like, if the questions somebody's asking are literally just you to recount the events of your life, then, I mean, you got to ask yourself a bunch of, like, that's <laughs> not really that appalling if they're just like, so you murdered someone. It's like, these questions are tough. It's like, I'm just whoa, saying whoa, facts, whoa, whoa, baby. Whoa, I didn't sign up for this. And it's, like, <laughs> it's like, whoa, this isn't where I thought this was going to be. Um, <laughs> but like, the one of the things that he says was when you're on heroin and you're on, you know, ketamine, when you're on all of these drugs, you were so Mm-hmm. dissociated from like reality because the question was about severing the legs off of the dead body of yes. Angel Melendez and he says mm-hmm. oh like you know when you were so dissociated you're sort of like you're not there you're 
you're like looking in on yourself almost. And I was like, mm-hmm. I get that. And I feel like that is probably a huge part of this is like th- what the, the fiendish sort of like the drug use that has like caused these people to completely like forget the rules of humanity. Like that's a huge part of it. That doesn't excuse anybody's behavior, but like that was a huge part of this culture as well that we just hadn't really talked about yet was like all of the drugs that they were doing. and like huge amount of drugs. And in fact, I read that they even downplayed the amount of drugs within the party monster movie because they didn't want to like show it. And, and by the, and spoiler alert, there's a ton of drugs being done in the movie. So I can't, Imagine the downplaying it anymore. But I will say that in the stuff that I've read from Michael Alec after he's gotten out of prison, because he did some interviews, you know, he was paroled in 2014, I believe it was, and he died in 2020. And he, you know, tried very much to get himself out there as well, because he was a person who absolutely needed um, validation and outside attention constantly, and also had no other fucking life skills anyways. Um, But he did a lot of interviews and talked a lot about how about his drug use and the thing that really frustrates me is like he said many times like i'm certainly not trying to use the drugs as an excuse and then absolutely go into a tirade about using the drugs as an excuse for why he got to the place that he did and why you know why he ended he and freeze ended up killing angel and the thing about that that I find so insulting is that there are millions of people in this world who are struggling with a drug addiction or have, you know, in the past struggled with a drug addiction and are in recovery. There's so many people who are affected by drug use and all different kinds of it. And most people don't end up killing another person most people do wild unforgivable frustrating things while they're on drugs and that truly is them you know being in that state that you were talking about sort Mm -hmm. of the disassociative Mm -hmm. state but there has to be something in you that was in you before you started taking drugs and having that mess with your mind that would take it as far as michael alec and freeze took it also, it's worth noting, too, that he mentions kind of quickly in this in the, in the Guardian interview that, like, everybody was aware of it. Like, everybody within that the murder had happened within the culture, but also the people that were, there were a lot of people living in this home. And it was yeah. about a week after he died before they actually set about dismembering the body. Like, so he was just in Which a bathtub. I just... Which I, like, have a logistical question about that. You know I'm your logistical girl. I always yeah. gotta ask... There are several people living in this apartment, and no one needed to take a bath or a shower. Right? For a like, what's going on? Week? Is this an ensuite situation? Like, in, <laughs> in like somebody's master bedroom that's like away? Or is everybody so drugged out of their minds that like that's they're literally thing. going in the bathroom and like? And you're right; they probably just weren't taking showers. Like, yeah. But it is like it's wild. Also, the other thing about Michael, which is pretty common of addicts in general, but like I do think it speaks to like that level of sort of ownership that he felt over the world and over the people in his life. But mm-hmm. like this idea of like him just taking what he wants when he wants to take it, which is a huge through line in the movie and in the documentary. There's like mm-hmm. a couple of shots in the documentary of like things that had been recorded by like Michael and James or some of their friends that they just included in the documentary. And there's a shot where like James is essentially like 
kind of getting on Michael lightly as light, like as lightly as I imagine anybody probably ever got on Michael about anything, especially when they interview his mother. Um, it's who like, <laughs> apparently he can do no wrong in her eyes. Um, but like, he's, he's talking and he's like, Oh, they're like getting ready to do ketamine. I think. And he's like, you know, which is used on horses, by the way, like that's a drug that it's a, it's a horse tranquilizer. It's a horse tranquilizer. Um, and so he's, he's using it. And like James playfully is like, Oh, where'd you get this from? Digging around in my room, going, through my stuff and they're like and michael's like giggling about it and they're like having this chuckle and it's like he like like boundaries are not his thing so it's like if he wants it he's going to like he's gonna just like take it there's like they they, and there's examples of him doing that with physical things like drugs i'm sure clothes makeup whatever money um free ride he runs out on cabs or whatever but also ideas which is why it's so frustrating to me that he really is centered as like the king of club kids and i'm like everything you see is someone else's idea he stumbled on it took it and made it his own I know that about him. Like, you can just sense that about him, the way that he does it so casually with other things. Well, also, I mean, it's it's like, it it, co- it goes through, He, I mean, the way that Michael sort of, like, made his living was he became a, a promoter. He became a club promoter, like a really big club club promoter, and Limelight was one of the main clubs owned by the Peter Gation character, who you're going to find in the movie with an eye patch being played by the practices Dylan McDermott, um, which, by the way, was very, very generous casting. <laughs> Like, I was like, I was like, what? I can't wait. I was like, I can't wait for Brandon to give his hot take on Dylan McDermott. Or is it yeah. McDermott? Yeah. Sorry, I get Dermot Dermot Moroni, and, and I get those McDermott two names mixed up. Of wedding day fame, baby. Yeah. Um, Covered yeah, on this well, pod. Was... Covered on this podcast. If you're curious about, if you want to hear anything about Dermot Moroni, although he has nothing to do with this episode, <laughs> go ahead and listen to that wedding day. Covers beeps. Um, it's there for you whenever you're ready. I'm sure. I'm sure Maroney's name was 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 thrown around when they were trying to cast this part. They were probably like Maroney, uh, McDermott. <laughs> do you think? Do you think that there's ever been instances where one of them has been cast mistakenly for the other one? Like the person <laughs> walks in the room and like the director's like, oh shit, oh it's we the were, other one. It's the other one. Damn it. Okay, <laughs> rock out. Let's go. Well, your I skill guess sets we- are right there together. So. <laughs> We're going to get sort of the same thing. Something so. <laughs> tells us that we're going to be getting a pretty similar performance. And I don't want to deal with any more rigmarole. So, <laughs> action. <laughs> um, yeah, the eye patch is so funny, too. It's like, I know he obviously wore an eye patch in real Whoa, life. Whoa, that makes... I'm not going to co-sign. Um, uh, I'm not an just... ableist person. And I don't think it was funny. I think it was the sign of bravery in the face of trauma. And uh, so, yeah. But you know, on, continue elaborating on why um, this person. On anybody funny. else who did, you're right. You're and you're right. You're right to call me out on that. I think I love pretending to be. I. You. It's so fun. <laughs> you're, no, you're right. You're right. I shouldn't make fun of an eye patch. It's there's no reason to. Look, Dylan McDermott looks silly. Full tape. <laughs> he looks silly, and the eye patch just adds to it. But it's like. Also, Dylan McDermott has no gravitas as an actor, so it was just like. <laughs> What are you doing? Playing dress up? Girl. <laughs> also, I need to look up her name. The actress that played his wife. Okay, I know exactly. 
I know exactly who that is. Her and all my all my queer women will know exactly who she is. Oh, her, her name is Mia Kirshner, and she Let plays Jenny on the L word. L word. Yeah, and I remember seeing this movie and being like, "Oh shit, it's Jenny." <laughs> said no one. Other said than Jane. In that no. Theater, it was crickets in that theater, and Jane said, oh, "I did, shit, it's Jane. I did not see this." I did not see this in the theater, but no, I saw this, I think probably a couple years after it came out, but every queer woman would see her and say, oh my God, that's Jenny. So don't leave me. And you should all slide in our DMs and let us know um, that you did that so that Brandon feels like a damn fool. Absolutely. I did not know who it was. I thought that she was like, maybe like (laughs) an actress more familiar with TV. Um, no shade, but I did think he is just more familiar with TV. It but was I did, big... I did think that she gave a very toothsome performance. Um, I felt she like she didn't have very many lines, but mm-hmm. I felt but her like chewing them. the scenery. Like she was like, "I'm here. I don't care what Culkin does. I'm here to do a professional <laughs> job. I'm the wife of Peter fucking Gation. He runs the club. I know she had a backstory. I know she had journals oh. full of like oh my character, God. Of like course. character of discoveries, course. and just like anytime she was, it was like she was in a different movie from everybody else. Her like totally, <laughs> she just radiated this different energy, and it was really she, funny watching her interact 100%. because it would be this like loosey goosey patchwork performance from Culkin. And then it was like her interacting with him. She was giving like daytime, like soap opera, like realness. And it was just like, <laughs> well, I've spoken with the associates and you are going to be removed from this club. Too sweet. So if I were you, I'd pack my bags. It was just like, oh, she's really in her bag right now. She is doing it. I was like, good for you, girl. She's like, I'm going to handle this like any professional gig. And <laughs> you know what? And she I'm did. mad at her. Mm-mm. She did her thing. She's like, I'm tired of losing roles to Deborah Messing. Honestly, she gave she gave me the campiness I was looking for. She on, really on did. <laughs> this was like this was she was like the right kind of like the right kind of camp for for this right. role. She was mm-hmm. here to she was here to work, baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really fun to watch. So I I enjoyed her because I was just like the gall, like the gall. Yeah. Not even of the actor, uh, not even of the character of the actress. I was like, she came in here with audacity, and I'm here for. It. Um, <laughs> But like, yeah, she was she was really fun. There, Jane. I actually have a question for you though, and we haven't talked about yeah. this yet. Mm-hmm. What was it like to be here in this scene when all this was going down? What do you mean, be here? What was it like to? I'm sure what barkeep or like host some of these gigs. These oh. are some of your contemporaries, so I'm just asking. <laughs> what was it like to 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 take I the see. train over from Boston, Bean Town? Hit, hit up the clubs and like get in there and, and do the damn thing back then. Ugh, Brandon, you know, this was obviously well before my time. Okay. I wasn't even, I was in diapers when these kids were doing lines off the bar at Limelight. <laughs> Maybe not in diapers, but you know, <laughs> diapers were, you, they were a sweet, a co- <laughs> He's whispering at me. I didn't say anything. No, I'm just listening because I wanted to hear the story. Hands up. I'm. I I, want to sit at your knee and I wanted to find out because I didn't know. I thought I saw you in one of some of that archival footage. That's why I was like, "Is that Janie? (laughs) Is that Janie in that chicken outfit?" You know what, Claire the chicken? No, I was not Claire the chicken. I was at home 
doing my elementary school studies. Probably. I got my I got my dates confused. My apology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I did. There were like the like the thing is that this culture, especially like. When you when you look at like the documentary, like we've talked about just the erasure of Angel, which is true. Like in mm-hmm. the movie, it's also like the directors clearly did not challenge themselves with thinking like they didn't think to themselves, this is a real blind spot in a movie that's largely about this crime. Like let's let's spend some time with Angel's like family members and maybe learn more about who Angel was as a person mm-hmm. and like make Angel, like a three-dimensional character. Angel, by the way, is played by the legend. The, I use legend a lot. It's because I'm just a super but this, gay. But this but is really... real legend. Real, real legend. legend. Uh, the eternal snack that is Wilson mm-hmm. Cruz. He, is, he gets more beautiful. He, he more doesn't beautiful age. He doesn't he, age. He's so lovely. He is in every single worthy gay story committed Absolutely. to film. And I, every time I see him, I am absolutely so ecstatic because I know every he's going to, he's going to give a great performance and he's And you just be, love him. You just like, you just there's something him. about he's Wilson a, Cruz. You just, just love him. He's a beloved him. person, you know? Going back to my so-called life, baby, because that's, 100 that's what, like, always. And so it was just really nice to see Wilson, but I wanted more because I'm like, I want this more of this This is the thing. This is like, the angel erasure where it's like this should be so much a so much of a bigger part. It's Wilson Cruz. Like I want to see more Wilson Cruz. Always. Like this needs to be, you know, also this is the person that we're supposed to be like I hope if you're telling a story where there's a murder of someone, you're honoring them. And that doesn't happen in this movie at all. No, he's a tertiary ter- part of it. And like also Dave made me laugh cuz like Chloe Sevigny Mm-hmm. is in the movie she plays Gitsy, mm-hmm. and there's a scene where they are on a Geraldo-esque it was actually filmed on the Montel Williams uh, show set which I was like alright um, but it's out. John Stamos who's but they didn't want to get caught up in litigation so they listed that but that dude as talk show host in that in oh. the IMDB they were like we're not getting caught up in legalities on this one sis you're not getting us um, so he's giving a very Geraldo-esque performance and mm-hmm. he and and during that cl- clip while they're on the show which like you can find clips on youtube of like of the club kids they were featured on television a lot um in the yeah, early 90s late 80s so much footage and info just like on this whole like phenomenon mm-hmm. talking about the club kids and mm-hmm. also the murder and yes. michael alec and all of that kind of stuff and james mm-hmm. james like there's so much on youtube there's so many articles there's so many interviews and it is I have read a lot of them and I'm always fascinated by the this subculture, mm-hmm. you know, and feel the sadness that it is overshadowed by this this murder, of course. But what was really funny, you're absolutely right, by the way. What, what was really funny to me was we we're watching and then there's a clip of like Chloe Sevigny like at home watching this mm. on like television and sort of like taking it all in. And she says at one point, she says as they're showing them, she's like, oh, my God, like they get paid to do nothing. That's so cool. And then and then and then and Dave said, <laughs> Dave's like, who is this grown ass woman? <laughs> and it made me laugh so hard because it's like, are y'all trying to are y'all trying to like channel to us that Chloe Seven is supposed to be like a tot? Because she was well, fully like in a nightdress. 
Because like, Gitsy was like 14 when she started getting And involved. Chloe Sevigny was like 30 when she filmed yeah. it. So I was like, the math ain't math then. Because I feel like she's giving me like teenager, which, but it, but like, she's not. And like, it just made me laugh when Dave said that. Because I was, that was what I was thinking too. It was like, whose mom is this at home all day watching, watching this, you know? But clearly they were like trying to give us a kid's fantasy. Uh, Re- exactly and it was like okay can you just age her up then if you if she has to be Chloe Sevigny like great let's age her up because also the thing too I did not realize this I think until this time watching this these kids were so young when this all went down mm-hmm. Michael was like 21 I think James yeah. was like 21 or 22 like they mm-hmm. were so young to be thrust into this world you know or it's the world they created of course but yeah it just to be you know just to be a part of all of this also it's just it's also really interesting because it's like i mean one of the things that they they sort of they do a good job of sort of explaining what the club kick culture was obviously these are the people who lived it so of course um Mm -hmm. but one of the things they said that stuck out to me was like if you were to go to one of these nightclubs, like they they were celeb, these were celebrities. Like, yeah. you know, if you were to go to one of these nightclubs and you weren't going to see like a share or like Eliza Minnelli, you still may be able to catch, you know, like a Michael Alig. You know what I mean? You like the like these, that's what they were. So their presence in the nightclub was sort of a signal that like this was the place to be so that's one Mm -hmm. of the reasons why they were paid to sort of be there you know they were like in a way and very different but they were almost like a like a preempt to like a celebutaton because it's like those people that you're like how do they get paid like what are they getting paid before the club kids existed james st james was called was referred to as this uh, a celebutant and, and among like you know and there were a bunch of other, basically people with a trust fund with nothing to do that have time to go and party and dress up and 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 don't find really these have fabulous any. outfits and put them on and yeah. you know things are never going to wear again things are going to wear one time to go out and just like elicit a reaction like and be they photographed were, and they sort of like helped to just like create like a pulse within the club. Like they were the heartbeat yeah. of these of these establishments. So like when people came, you know, from wherever, you know, for this night out on the town in New York, you got to go and there was going to be a spectacle because it was full mm-hmm. of these really interesting, creative, artistic types who were going to give you like the show that you came. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, you may not get a celebrity who probably would have been boring and you wouldn't have really been able to engage with anyway because they would have been mm-hmm. surrounded, you know, by velvet ropes and like security guards like you get these people that are interactive and engaged and you also probably are picking up on like the fervor of the crowd when they come mm-hmm. in too. So even if you don't know who they are, you you can tell by the way that they are being talked about that they are people that matter. And like, that's kind of cool that you could effectively be like a yeah. nobody in the world and go to New York and like get in with these people and start doing creative art or using your body as a canvas and like making these installations and stuff. And like, you know, it, it is yeah. like a really neat thing to think about. Totally. Magical a time. Of, if you talk to a lot of former club kids, a lot of their um, aspirations were to be a part of Andy Warhol's, you know, um, orbit factory. and be, yeah. A, yeah. And be part of the factory and be amused to him and have him create art around them they wanted to be famous in that way in the way that like someone is using you and lifting you up and 
creating fame, but they're the ones really who are doing the work. You're just showing up and looking fabulous. And one of actually my favorite scenes in the Party Monster movie that is a standalone scene, doesn't have anything to do with mm-hmm. the documentary, is at the beginning where um, uh, Michael Alec, Macaulay Culkin and Seth Green are like at the donut shop. And um, Michael Alec sits down and he's like to say, James St. James, like, teach me everything you know about, like, you know, being fabulous or whatever. And there's this part where he shows Michael Alec how to work a room. And they walk around the donut shop and they do, you know, do the one lap where you say hello to everybody and you're together and you're walking together and you're saying hello. And then you do another lap the other way and you guys go opposite ways and you go, oh, hi, have you seen my friend? Have you seen my friend? And then you go around again with your friend and say, oh, we found each other. Isn't that fabulous? We've been looking for each other all night. Don't worry. Don't worry about us. We found each other. And then you're out. And it's the whole thing should take 90 minutes. And I was just like, I loved that. I thought that was such a like hilarious moment and like such a such an essence of what like that like club culture is about too that, you know that scene also featured one of my favorite lines in the movie which was which was when um the james saint james character looks at the clock and he goes oh heavens is that the time my sanskrit class yes! <laughs> so good and that there really were a, there are a lot of good lines in the movie like there are a few that always make me chuckle and they're usually james st james <laughs> there yeah there are a lot of great moments i would say he fares green fares a little better than calkin as far as like agreed closer to something that feels like reality yeah. um a little bit more successful but uh, yeah there were like moments that were like good that were good um that were good moments in the movie. I thought that like mm-hmm. it, one thing that they did really well that like may have been an accident was like, there wasn't really a lot of chemistry between these two. Yeah. Um, and it's like, I think that's just because in a way it feels like Michael was a person that was very difficult to connect with. And yeah. I, I definitely like got that. There were like all, they also like, they took some things that like Michael had done and they sort of like mashed them together. Like one of the people in the documentary talked about being handed a bottle of Gatorade by, by mm-hmm. Michael that was filled with urine and he drinking out of it, thinking that it was Gatorade and like, Oh, and they and just laughing. And it's like, that's an assault and that's mean. And that's horrible. It's also like, it, it also, it's like, what, like, was it just to get a ride, just to see what the person would do? Or did you like, or like, I'm, th- I'm so untouchable that like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't dare. Yeah. You wouldn't, it, you know? It's, it's, that's, that's Michael Alex's whole personality. It's, he's seeing how far he can go without, without being stopped. And he found the line and the line was fucking murder. Like he at first people thought it was fun and he was rebellious and he was making a statement against, you know, societal standards and that resonated with people because that's what counterculture is about always is about we stand for something and this was a counterculture that actually didn't really stand for anything, but it stood, well, I don't know, that can be now that I'm saying that, I'm like, that's actually not true. They did stand for something, but it was short-lived and 
<laughs> shadowed by a ton of drug use and not necessarily like a strong point of view. So I think it sort of crumbled. It, it feels like it initially did. And it feels like they like it all got sort of like obscured by like what started out as casual drug use and then turned into all consuming right. drug use. And then it was just sort of like this becoming like a means to an end to get your next fix. Like right. that for, not for everybody maybe, but I'm just saying for some people, Jane also mm -hmm. mentioned earlier. I mean, they were doing a lot of like, like, like sexy body performances at these clubs to bring people in as well. So it's like, yeah. there were like performances where people were going on stage and like exposing their body. And they said for like $50, like yeah. going on stage and getting naked in front of a crowd or showing their asses or showing, you know, their body parts to see who could elicit the most reaction from the crowd. Mm -hmm. Like, so it was like, and like for what to like make Michael happy. Like, I just feel like there was that at the end of the day, if you did something that brought in a crowd, Crowd, like take your dick out in front of people you know that excited the crowd and made it fun then michael was happy with you and that meant that you were in with him because and you, you had to prove you had to prove your worth to him in that sense you know a lot of people had they also to. have a they also had a wheel of hepatitis that like oh my god this pissed me off so much sorry go ahead no no you i didn't even fully understand what was happening so if you can feel free to explain it in the documentary they talk about a will of hepatitis with like different like friends or people associates like faces on it so michael had caught hepatitis and he then decided that he was going to go around and try to kiss as many people as possible, spit in their drinks, take a sip of their drinks, touch, you know, do, do whatever he could to make sure that other people caught his hepatitis. And so then they made, as a fun party event, they said, we this is the thing that Michael did to them. And this is why we think they should be on the wheel of hepatitis. Like, and that's like, we, we, we think that Michael gave this person hepatitis, all those people. I, I did not even catch like, that's deplorable. Um, yeah, it's fucking horrible. It's assault is what it is. Once again, yeah. like, so it's like, this is the type of behavior that I think probably largely due to everybody's sort of drug it, induced haze like and that's another important part of it is that he says at one point you know at first everybody wanted drink tickets and then at a certain point people wanted drugs yeah. instead of the drink tickets people wanted bumps and like he was also like in a way like the person that could provide the drugs or at least be a link to get people drugs which is which you know is a part of the story of angel as well having been a drug dealer it's like it's, I don't think it's above, like, I don't think it's crazy to think that a big part of the reason why Angel, who wasn't, who had, you know, moved to New York, was, was making himself available in that way was because that was a way that he saw to gain access to this group, was, like, having a thing that they wanted and providing them with it. Mm -hmm. But it's, like, that was a big part of it, too, was, like, he, he was giving people drugs and he was, like, a through line. So it's, like, also when you've dedicated your whole life to this, like, life and this lifestyle, then it's, like, I have to imagine, like, anything else in life, it's everything to stay within it and to stay within good graces. And, I mean, apparently, mm -hmm. like, those, like, we talked about, you know, multiple times now throughout this is, like, the idea of pushing the line, which uh, which apparently was, like, not a big deal for him because, I mean... It, we're we're now we're now in talking about this circle of hepatitis. We're now we're now understanding in terms of degrees, the degree of inflicting and like 
the damage and then like the and then also like wanting the damage to be like on display like mm-hmm. wanting to like it's not enough for you to have done it but i want the world to know what i did i want the i want you to have been publicly humiliated and it's like i'm not that anybody who has should feel humiliated who who this has happened to who's been tricked and like intentionally like inflicted with but it's just like the idea that this was a part of it is like really like it's just wild it's like I can't imagine a friend doing that to me and like, well, me not going to cops for one thing, but like also like, it's just crazy. But this is the type of like, it seems like like the casual person of what who does that to you is not a friend. No, <laughs> you know? absolutely. Um, the, uh, it seems like it was so commonplace. That's one of the things I took away from the documentary is that his behavior was so, it was deplorable and it was so over the top that like, these stories I feel like are probably just the tip of the iceberg. Like, but- and I bet there was a disbelief that the, they were happening to them. Like, I bet, like, I bet, like, you don't have time to process when someone has like pissed on you and you're fucked up on drugs and you're on a night out. You're not, you don't necessarily have the time in the space from the incident to, to step back and be like, that was really really not okay you know what i mean well also the person who said oh i drank his vomit i can't i can't i actually i you we i know i mentioned my synopsis but i actually can't talk about it because i will start to dry heave because that is i i can't it's the most horrifying thing i've ever heard in my entire fucking life like i can't i can't talk about one thing one thing about seth green's performance that actually really did like that did stick with me was he sounded like he had a sinus infection the whole time. Oh my god, it, he sounded sick. It he was like sick. the yeah. entire time, any time he would talk, he had this thing going on where he admit he was doing <laughs> this. I was like, what are you doing? Or maybe I, Seth just was dealing with something. Grop. I mean, he could have had a sinus infection for the whole shoot. You never know. Like, I don't. I didn't. I I didn't see how long it took them to shoot this movie, but you know. Sometimes these low budget movies are like we're we're shooting this in in a month and you could have something plaguing you for a month, you know. And you've I know you've worked on these kind of sets before and I know on your sets it doesn't matter if you get sick, right? You still force your no, actors no, no. to perform. Absolutely. Absolutely. I get what I pay for. <laughs> and then you create like what like a, you call it a circle of whiny bitches and it's similar to the hepatitis circle but you just put the name and like the what you deem is a frivolous complaint on the circle and then you sort of like do a quick you know roll of that will and then whoever is it lands on they're ostracized from the group right um it's similar but i actually um <clears throat> instead of like a wheel what i i was gonna go down a dark road and i stop that because this is not the episode to make dark jokes (laughs) also i the woman who plays alka who is michael alig's mother in the movie Mm. um really good casting it's diana scarwood who plays christina crawford in uh, mommy dearest and and that was really fun for me to see i had no idea (laughs) <laughs> to see her, her, her at it, and I was like, they went and got, they got a, they got a camp queen, and they brought her into the fold. I love it. Um, she actually, I mean, that was pretty good casting. When I saw the documentary, I was like, damn, she looks a lot like the mom. Like, 
They, she looks a lot like them. Was they they did a really good job with that one. I was like, that's up. They got a lot of big names to be in this movie. This is a huge cast, and it's a huge cast. It is. I, I you know, I mean, it, I think like I know you didn't love the movie, of course, but like at the time for me, that was a huge pull because it was like tons of people in this cast and that's why i want to see this movie too and then of course learning about you know all of the the club kids but i don't know if tara is gonna find this as i hope she doesn't find this as an insult we're watching the movie the natasha leone character was giving me like tea vibes at one point i was like i was like no she's not not like not like completely but there were like a couple of scenes where it was just really cool no it was just no, I wouldn't mean that as an insult. Do you think Tara's gonna find an insult? I don't know. She's, she's a really fun find... character. I, I, it is not. It has nothing to do with the character. I just like. I hate the whole look of that character. Oh well, she with is the... a little she, okay. So let's talk about this for a second. Okay. It, I, yeah, it wasn't the look, and let's talk about this for a second because there was a lot of dreads mean... and. Okay, that's that. That's the no. Thing that's that not what I meant. To. So you're not no. talking about she doesn't look like Tara. Just like no. When she was vibes. talking like a couple of times, it was just kind of uh, funny. Oh, okay. No, yeah, yeah. that's no, fine. I, I thought no. I was like, what are you? But I do want to talk about this really quick. There yeah, were yeah. a lot of white people in this. Well, it's mostly white people, but there's a lot yeah. of people in this movie with dreads. Yeah. And with like box braids, and mm-hmm. I was like, what is what is going on? Because y'all don't have black on? people. Y'all decided to just. Y'all gonna just fill that role? Like, there was a lot. I, and I'm sorry if we have any white dreaded, like, listeners out there. No, no, no. I'm not sorry. If we have any white dreaded <laughs> listeners out there, I want you to take a really fucking good look at your choices and understand that that is literally the height of cultural appropriation. And it's if you wild. don't know what that is, fucking Google it and look it up because you are literally walking around with a whole ass culture that is not yours on top of your head. So stop it. And and literally do the work. Honestly. Honestly. Yeah, I get no. so mad every time I see a white person with dreads. I no, get so mad. It's enough. Because it's like, out. it's 2022. I could understand if this was, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago and you didn't understand. There wasn't the conversations that we're having now. I get it. And maybe you a, a hopefully made the decision to cut them off and, you know really understand what you did was not cool fine we all make mistakes but if you're doing that now and you don't know that that's not okay i can't i can't fuck with you right now so please get a haircut sorry i'm no you're no you're no i'm coming in hot no you're no you're good i had a white friend when i was in high school i remember and he had dreads and Mm -hmm. i remember he used to use glue he used to use like elmer's glue Like that's because that was like one of the ways that like, I don't know. And I don't know. I just remember he used to do it. He would put it in the dreads and that was kind of how he got the dreads to stay locked was with this Elmer's (laughs) glue, which is like crazy. I actually, I would have to look into it because I am actually curious and I have not looked into it. I'm at the beginning of a lock journey that like I have never been as aware of my hair as I am now. And as fearful as I am of losing hair, I've never cared about losing hair. And all of a sudden I'm like, now you have it. You're never going to... You have an incredible hairline. You have so much hair. It looks I, beautiful. I really, I really hope I don't right now. Because it's like, it's going to take me several years for these dreads to mature. So I'm like, here's hoping that they like, that they can stay the, t- they can stay the course. But if it happens, you know, all bodies are beautiful. Um, <laughs> but no, but I, but I did like, I like, I felt like the character, it was Brandy, right? That was the character Leon was based on. 
Um, what's her name? Brandy? Brooke. Sorry. Brooke. I was like, that doesn't um, sound right. Okay. Brooke, I liked I liked her in the documentary because she was just spilling the tea. She was I felt like she <laughs> had like she had a grasp on like the reality also. Yeah. Like because clearly the other big thing about this world, which I get, I'm a performer, like I get the idea of escaping. You know what I mean? Like totally. that was what this was. And like I've and I've also I've never been a night like a nightclub girl. I'm a nighttime girl. But you're gonna find me, you know, bundled up watching some ID investigation discovery. That's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, that network was that network was a game changer for me. I was mm-hmm. I'm I'm so old. I was in Jane's living room the first time that I saw a commercial advertising investigation discovery. I remember quaking because I was like, they fucking cracked the code. Why? Why it. is it gotta be? Why is it gotta be? You're so old. You were in my living room. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm the one who's giving you ancient status. Fuck off. I like. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. And I know you're self-conscious about your age. No. Um, but I didn't. But I didn't mean that. I just meant like that's how long ago we it goes. It was like 13 years ago, yeah, and they were like, yeah. we got something in the cooker. And I was like, just a network about. So it's just a network of Dateline. And you all know. Count me in. Investigate. You guys know that. Investigate. Which also was good though too because if it's you better don't. than Dateline. Yeah, if yeah. you don't, then what are you doing? It, you it also was good for me because I love, they do a really good variety. Although I, it's interesting that I haven't seen this story on any of any, I've never seen this story. I've heard this story once in a podcast. I think it was my favorite murder. I've heard them do like a version of this story, but I didn't oh, fully um, remember yeah, yeah. it. But I've never seen anything like a document, other than mm-hmm. these two, I've never seen an actual documentary about uh, Michael Aleg or about anything. So I mean, obviously, there's the Party Monster documentary, but I haven't seen anything else other than that. There, which is surprising. Stuff. He's done interviews, and you can find him on YouTube. I've watched them, some of them. Okay, he's done yeah, like yeah. interviews, but also it's like the thing too, and the problem with a lot with like some of the stuff that I found, the interviews and things that I found with him is that. He's still kind of letting himself off the hook. And he's still... 100%. 100%. He's not taking full ownership. And, like, even, like, in the interview I read, he was... He's telling, like... He's telling... Well, two things. One is that he tells the story of, like, a friend coming to visit him who wanted to bring a plastic hammer with him, like, as, like, a cute joke. Like, the item... One of the items that they used to kill Angel of the And it's like, that's not funny. Like, in any... No. Like, what? Like, you still don't get it, then, if you think that that's cute. And then he tells the story of all the letters he got in prison from young people who were, like... Who've written him. And he's like, they don't... They, they like me because of what I did, but, like, they always start the letters with what you did was horrible, but... And it's like, then they don't get it either. Because it's like, there's no but. Yeah. And it's like, that one sentence does not excuse it before they go into a letter where they're celebrating you and they're like, no. talking about how incredible what you did was. And like, it's also like, it's so easy, I feel like, to look at this and to be like, oh my God. And once again, I, I'm saying like, this person and like, what he represented. I'm not saying the club culture. Like, I get that you can right. look at a lot of this and you could be like, whoa, that seems really cool. Being a person, first of all, me... I mean, I had, like, some popular moments in high school, but, like, by and large, I identify as a nerd. Um, mm-hmm. And not, like, one of those people who, like, identifies as a nerd but really isn't. Like, I think I am kind of, like, mm-hmm. a little nerdy. Um, but, well, like, I was friend. never the... <laughs> I was never, like, in the clubs like that anyway. I've always mm-hmm. been the one who's holding everybody's coats and ready to go home. So, like, <laughs> I never fully was enveloped by the club culture. And I guess it's over because by the time this is over, I'm going to be full-on fully... Um, middle-aged 
Um, <laughs> the way these pandemics are coming back to back now, I know. It's, it's too. Also, I you wouldn't. Oh. It wouldn't even matter. You wouldn't find me there. I walked no. home from the gym. And my feet started hurting, and I was like, "Ooh." So no. I think the dogs are barking. So I, I just I don't see that for me in my in my future, and it wasn't in my past either. It's just never going to be the moment. Anyway, so it, it's all really just appalling. And like, I mean, the things that I will say if I can struggle to find some sort of like positivity about about what like the club culture and like one of the mm-hmm. things that I do think that they captured in the movie is like that sort of like. I think the frivolity, just like the the like the joy and frivolity and like whimsy and like finding ways to access whimsy, like mm-hmm. and like not adhere to the rules of society. I think that that scene at like the chicken shack where they go to like this, they go to this just chicken restaurant. It's mm-hmm. a really like it's a really fun scene, and it, and it is something that was really popular. Where like in addition to clubs like Limelight, they were also like these pop up parties. They show a clip in the in the documentary, and they kind of do a light reenactment in the actual movie, but it's like a party at like a subway, like in a subway station, or like they go to like a restaurant, like they go to a donut shop or they go to like, you know, a burger joint. Like, and it's not just the two, it's like 300 people. Oh, it's no, it's no, it's throngs of people who appear full dressed in their full club kids gear. And it's like wild because it's like to think about a world in which these people, but also the thing too, that's really interesting is like, the cops were, you just got yourself off. What were you going to say? Oh, I don't know. The cops, <laughs> the cops were like a huge part of it, though. Like, the, like the cops yeah. arriving was like a built-in part of the evening, totally. which is like they so like they wanted, they wanted it. It was like that's what happens, and you see in some of the clips in the movie and in the documentary, you see clips of him like being interviewed by just a person who's there with a camera, and then at one point, somebody be like, "The cops are coming," and he's like so casual because it's like that's just that's a thing that happens at the party. That's like yeah. that's how we know when the party's over. Essentially, is like when the cops are called and when the cops show up. But like they would just like do it's like guerrilla style partying where it's like we mm-hmm. show up at a place, we overtake the establishment in the movie the scene is him ordering 300 burgers and like 300 fries which i was just like i'd walk out if i were yeah him. I'd like, no, i'm done that's it i'd be like no but i do i do that is the exciting fun part of it you know it's not like he didn't contribute anything great to this and it's, also let's be this wasn't just michael ailing like the, no, like, no no that's that yeah. that's what i meant to say is like mm-hmm. he contributed to this community that already exists and then usurped it and capitalized it and stole a bunch of people's ideas but there were some really cool ideas and moments happening within this scene and something that i would have loved when i was like 18 19 years old like fuck yes let's pack into a burger place and like have an impromptu gorilla style party why not like why the fuck not this would have appealed to me so much i mean i don't necessarily like love the idea of like dressing up like you know a troll and wearing you know 12 foot 12 12 inch platforms or whatever but like i definitely could see myself going to one of these parties if i lived in new york and it was available 100 percent. i mean if i could have somehow kept my distance from him if that was possible and like right i don't just like enjoyed the fantasy of everybody else and people were going to be kind to me like i don't particularly love the idea of being in any scenario where like i'm being treated like shit so like as no, long as you I would know. not have wanted to associate with Michael, but the fact of the matter is, is like those were that top tier of people are like, you know, 
only really associating with each other and then everyone else is either trying to get to them or trying to be noticed by them and I think that's a really interesting part because like I would definitely have wanted to be on the outside of that just with my friends enjoying the party I don't give a shit about this guy's pissing on everybody actually if I saw him piss on somebody I'd be like it's time for me to go because I'm done here also I mean it's like it's not for anybody also also a really like interesting like thing to think about if you want to sort of like like because that was the thing I tried to wrap my head around was like these people were so popular just for existing within the New York scene that yeah. they were like on these, they were on multiple like talk shows. It's like they, so they were enough of a talking point that it was like, let's have them as guests on our show. That's the yeah. kind of impact that they had. So it's like, it is so great. Also in the interview, there's an interview, a Herald interview from 1990 that Rue is on the panel. And it's also funny because in the interview, Rue basically is saying a lot of the things that Rue has become famous for. Yeah. Um, but basically, like, something along the lines of, you know, we're all born naked and the rest is drag. Rue says yeah. it on the show in 1990, which I was She's, like... Yeah, she said that. An and, and if you'll notice um, an article that I read, I think it was, like, a Vice article. It's a James St. James interview where, like... He brings so much of the heart to the movement that Michael Alec doesn't. Where it's like when people ask questions, Michael Alec doesn't give a real answer. He's rude. He's cocky. He says something totally unexpected and like weird. And, you know, James St. James says the thing like, you know, we're here for everybody. We're celebrating, you know, um, what people we're celebrating what isn't normally celebrated within our society you know if you have a hunchback throw some glitter on it and go out and party you know and like he's saying that rupaul is having those moments like we're you know we're born and the rest is drag like there are messages behind this it's just you know unfortunately the guy the front guy within the media is just Michael fucking Alec, you know. There's a there's a really funny moment in the interview too, because it's like it's Geraldo, and it's like first of all Geraldo, who's you know acting like he wasn't like getting it in at nightclubs and shit in the seventies, but whatever. Um, it's like you're acting like this is all foreign to you. It's like you. Were I know. It's too. like oh, you got a little cocaine on your mustache, Geraldo. Exactly, a little cocaine. Um, <laughs> but he's like talking to like Michael Musto. Actually, is like it's you know it's about like creating you know an identity, and he says, I mean am I wrong in saying that you also, you changed your name as well. And Geraldo's like, um, for a reporter, you've definitely got your details wrong. And it's like, no, he doesn't. You absolutely change your name, Geraldo. Like what was, what was Geraldo's name? Gerald. And he changed it to Geraldo. Oh. Like, and so, but it's just like, I like that he was just like, no, no, I didn't. And it's like, you yeah. did. And it's like been documented. Like your birth certificate oh, is fucking Geraldo. Verifiable, Gerald. But it's just like, but also 1990s. So I guess he was really yeah. like, you know, what are you going to say? But I just thought that was really funny that like they were clocking him and he was like, no, who me? Um, yeah, you. <laughs> um, so that was really, really funny to me. Also, I had this moment too, where I was just like, wow, these people are all like us, like a little bit younger. Like they're around the age of like my uncle. And my aunt, like yeah, they're a little bit younger yeah. than my mom, just a little bit. But it was just like, wow, like that was just crazy to think about it and to see and to like think about where some of them are now because it's like so mm-hmm. many. Like it's just interesting to think about. Like you know, we we see RuPaul now in these like custom tailored suits on like the show, and like Michael Musto also like seeing him on the show with these sunglasses on and this like funky hat. 
Yeah. Also, I thought it was really interesting because I was reading about club culture and they were like, 25 is really like the cutoff. And I was like, <laughs> and I was just curious watching this interview and like Michael Musa was like 35 and it's like, oh, but he's reporting the story. So maybe they're giving him a pass. But I just Could loved it. Was he the- that old? Was he 35 at that time? Uh, uh, first of all, 35 is super young and very vibrant. No, no, no. Um, first of all, <laughs> I I was just surprised. No, I was surprised too. Considering that everyone else is like 21, 22. Like, that he was know, like a part was, of it. And I'm sure that he had a certain... let me tell you, at yeah. 35, I'm not looking to hang out with any 21 or 22-year-old. I'm sure a big part of it though. But also it's like, think about the limitations that sort of surrounded like where the queer culture was. So I'm sure for him, it That's probably true. was... There probably was a subset of like slightly older like queer people that were like yeah, around sure. them, but like did their own thing. But mm-hmm. like, I'm sure they invited him with open arms because he, you know, had the access. He was also one of the people. They were like, when Angel went missing, there were like all of the... the like there were several big publications that were doing like the like the like um hot topics where you like say the thing without saying the thing and it's like one of new york's top club kids is said to be tangled in the in the death of a missing you know it's like those kinds of pieces like were being done and michael said that michael alig he said like it was an open secret everybody knew and like people were talking about it but like nobody was going to the cops is what wasn't happening but it's like people were You mean were Michael Musto was saying. Is it Musto? No, I'm sorry. Actually, Alig. Alig is talking about how these articles were going out and he remembers seeing the oh, articles yeah, yeah, by yeah, people yeah. like Michael Musto. Like they were creating these like hot topic and these pieces where they don't actually say the thing, but they give and you all those, of these details. And it's kind of crazy. For those of you guys who don't know, Michael Musto is a journalist and yes. he worked for the Village Voice and wrote for the Village Voice for like years and and a bunch of other publications but I think that was like his home. He's like yeah, a very one. like New York a New Yorker, like a staple, you know, for sure. um in New York and writes a lot about like culture, particularly queer culture. Um but that is, yeah, I mean, the, the fact that it was just this total open secret and, you know, he wrote an item about it, two items about it before, you know, he um, Michael Alec was even arrested is like egregious. Like, how are we? So it's like people are talking about it without talking about it. And it's like we all know about it. And it's also it's just wild. Um, Brandon, I do have a question for you, although we didn't really talk about the details of the movie that much would you watch this movie again no (laughs) okay okay that's fair that's fair and i would love to know if you have a movie um in in your back pocket for your girl to watch next week i do i do um i have a movie for you to watch i've been deciding uh i've been on the fence between two films uh, but I think I'm gonna make the I'm gonna make the executive decision. All right, I trust you. I trust you. I, I trust you am going life. to have you watch the classic mm-hmm. Terminator. <gasps> oh no, Tara's gonna be so excited. The first one. The first one. We're starting with the one. I know everybody gags over T2. Well, I know. So that's the one she likes. But for those of you who don't know, um, Tara, my wife and um, editor of this podcast, um, is a huge Terminator fan. I've never seen them. Dave is a a big one, too. So Mm -hmm. I know they're going to be, as Bette Miller would say, from a distance. Mm. Listening (laughs) in. 
Well, you guys, thank you for listening to us talk about Party Monster. I know it's a difficult one and not necessarily a lovely topic of conversation, but hopefully it was an interesting one. And Brandon, thank you for chatting all of that out with me. Absolutely um, no. It's I mean, it's a movie. It's it's a movie that I've heard a lot about. And I'm happy that I saw it because I'd never mm-hmm. seen it before. And I don't think I would ever watch this movie because I knew what it was about. And right. I don't think I just would, although I do, it's, I don't know. I can't say that, I guess. I don't know. Whatever. The point is I'd never seen it before and I am glad that I watched it. So thank yeah. you for suggesting it. Of course. Um, well, we love you guys and we appreciate you guys and we think you guys look really hot in whatever you're wearing right now. And if you want to continue to keep up so with hot. us throughout the week and receive compliments on our outfits and in turn you can compliment us it's not like (laughs) i would have never thought you look you jane mentioned it. you look really hot i would have never thought that a bra and culottes Mm -hmm. would look that good on somebody but you're You're wearing it it off you are working (laughs) it and to pick up the kids from school (laughs) love 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 the the jelly sandals with it too it looks incredible absolutely and those cliffhangers that big toe that's hanging out of the front of them oh god ew i can't okay that's that's too far um if you want to follow us on social media you can find us on instagram and facebook at movies we missed and if you want to follow us on twitter go right ahead because we're at mwm chat um we love you guys we will see you next week for lay terminator have a wonderful week and we will see you soon bye bye Oh heavens, is that the time? My Sanskrit class!